ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting edition of Monday Motivation. Hi everyone, this is Rabbi Garfinkel of Project 613 here in Chicago. And we are back for another great week. Oh, it's going to be awesome. And hope everyone had a very blessed, extended Thanksgiving weekend with family and friends. Eating your kosher turkeys, of course. Right, everyone, of course. No question. And now as we're getting back to work, another exciting weekend. All right, so everyone, please like and subscribe to Money Motivation on all the various channels where you listen to podcasts, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, you name it, Amazon, we're there. So let's spread the word, share the wealth, because there's a lot of very exciting messages here. And I was debating, should I address the anti-Semitism, the increasing anti-Semitism, because we are all about positivity. And I have to tell you that even though we are going to talk about the virulent anti-Semitism, which is rearing its ugly head once again around the world, and particularly in America, this is going to be an inspiring podcast. This is going to be a podcast where you're going to be challenged, where the classic responses to anti-Semitism are going to be challenged, and I hope you'll jettison them, jettison them, and get rid, i.e., get rid of them, and look at things differently. So fasten your seatbelts and let's take a tour of the world in which the Jews are living in now. If I was going to give a full report on anti-Semitism, we would be here for hours, and we only have about 18 more minutes left in our 20-ish minute podcast. So here we go. As we all know, anyone who is even slightly aware of anything Jewish knows that anti-Semitism around the world is not only increasing, it's exponentially in- increasing. Okay, open attacks to uh, against Jews in New York. Um and Israel's not surprising. There's always been terror attacks, etc. But we're really talking about something, a new phenomenon. Europe's been gone for a long time. Sorry, folks. But America, good old America. And the uh, places where you wouldn't necessarily expect it with the American Jewish community's love affair with the college campus. Uh, if there was a love affair, a deep love affair, the ultimate sign of success and achievement is the college campus and yet the college campus is quickly and very powerfully turning against the jew in one of the most ironic (laughs) this is too funny you can't make this stuff up it's literally if you wrote this in a script you wouldn't believe it. But nine groups at UC Berkeley. Now I say, okay, you say UC Berkeley. They're off the chart. Listen, I'm from the Bay Area. I spent time on Berkeley campus. I went to Stanford as an undergrad. I know Berkeley well. So people say, oh, Berkeley. No, 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 no. What starts in Berkeley continues to go to the rest of the country. And UC Berkeley is virulently anti-Israel. 
And there are nine groups in the UC Berkeley Law School that have established Jewish free zones. Okay, which means no pro-Israel speaker, no no pro-Israel speakers or Zionist speakers or anyone giving any type of positive, you know, message about Israel because of the atrocities that the Israelis do. Okay, hopefully we'll get to those quote-unquote atrocities a little bit later. Anyway, so in what's absolutely just too ironic, the dean of Berkeley Law School is Jewish. Erwin <laughs> Cherminsky. And he would be forbidden to speak at his own school. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not making fun of Erwin at all. I'm sure he's a wonderful fellow. And he's come out very strongly against these Jewish free zones. But come on, the head of the law school can't even speak freely at his own school. Maybe they'll maybe they'll boycott graduation because he's Jewish. Okay. So that's just one of many. And 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 even especially physical safety on campus is not uh, guaranteed at all, at all, at all. Okay, now this was a shocker. Okay, listen to this. In terms of hiring practice, this is really intense. Okay, so this is an article I, I saw in a few places. HRdive.com says one in four hiring managers say they're less likely to hire Jewish applicants. Well, that's exciting. Um, why? 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 So one in four hiring managers said in a survey that they're less likely to move forward with Jewish applicants due in part to a belief that Jews have too much, quote, power and control, unquote, which is the same thing that our good friend Kanye, Mr. Yee, said about us. Okay. Uh, additionally, one in six hiring managers said leadership told them not to hire Jewish applicants. Wow. That's from the upper, upper echelon. Well, one third said anti-Semitism is common in their workplace. Wow. Okay. This is really exciting. Okay. So this is a, a study done by Resume Builder. And at the end, they call for awareness, zero tolerance, positive racism, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> this is at a time you have to understand the irony of this whole thing. The entire world on college campuses, in the workplaces, it's been taken over by DEI. Now, if you don't know what DEI is, you need to know what DEI is. DEI is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And now this is in every dorm and every college and in every workplace and so it, it sounds really good like yes i'm all in i i like you know tolerance and people getting along and you know we're the ones who taught the world to love your neighbors yourself you know that's our idea that everyone's picking up on but um there's an irony here in that dei seems to include everyone except the jew why because maybe okay well, there's a lot of reasons for it. Maybe we're too successful, as that survey said. We're, we have too much power control. We're the oppressors. And therefore, the DEI does not extend to the Jewish people. Okay, so here we are. We have to ask ourselves a question. Is this new? Is this new? Is this a new phenomenon that should shake us, you know, to the core? Should this rattle our cages as the expression goes. And before we, or not even before, but the way that we respond, not only to this issue, 
but to every issue and to any issue of this gravity and importance is to look in the Torah. We've got to look at the Torah. That's our book. That's our playbook. You know, we certainly can't go to the New York Times bestseller list. They're the ones distributing anti-Semitism. So here we go. Let's take a look at the Jewish playbook, the Torah. And it's uh, so special that right now we're going through the Torah portions of Genesis, of Bereshis, and there were three patriarchs. We had three patriarchs, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And each one of them experienced a different relationship with the non-Jews around them, okay? And these ideas are um, particular from Rav Nachman Bowman's Zetzal. As I'm recording this podcast, I look up and I see his picture. It should be a merit for his soul. One of the great, great explainers of the Torah, of a timeless Torah to modern minds. He explained it so well to us. Okay, Rav Bowman, this is for you. So, Avraham, our first patriarch, was called the Ivri. The Ivri, by the way, that means Ivrit. That means the Hebrew. You'll know in Hebrew, you'll, you'll go Ivrit is Hebrew. We're called the Hebrews, okay? In Bereshis, Avram is called the Hebrew, which means the Ivri. Now, what does Ivri mean? It means La'avor. It means to be on the other side, which means the other side of what is popular. Everyone was believing in idol worship, and that these idols were that were in control of the universe. And Avram said, that is full of nonsense. It is only Hashem, God, CEO of the universe, who is in control. And so literally you had the whole world on one side of the popular opinion. And you had Avraham on the other side, the La'avor, Ivri. He was on the other side. And that's why we're called Hebrews. Because we are the ultimate counterculture people. We are used to making a stand. We stand for what is right. And we're not going to let public opinion or cancel culture shout us down. And in fact, Avraham, who stood most clearly for these principles, he was called Nesi Elohim, the Prince of God. The non-Jews had so much respect for Avraham because Avraham clearly was standing up for true values and true principles. And the non-Jews appreciated that. They called him a prince of God. Yitzhak. Now, now things started degrading, breaking down. Yitzhak had what we call like a low-grade anti-Semitism, which means he had disagreements with the local rulers and he was sent away, had a little exile, um, you know, a little Nuremberg laws here. <laughs> like, he had to leave Gerar. You know, Avi Malik wasn't so happy with him. There was disputes of the wells and the, and, the, and the shepherds. And there was a lot of jealousy because of success. And this kind of reminds us today of like academic boycotts and all sorts of things like, you know, you can't play. You know, like a Jewish free zone at UC Berkeley. So funny. Okay. And, but, but, so there was, but it wasn't an open attack. And then the third patriarch, Yaakov, he was chased his whole life by his brother Esau, who was not who was not Jewish. And the Talmud says a very famous formula, Asab Sona the Yaakov, that Asab, there's a certain hatred that will always be born of Asab representing the non-Jewish nations to Yaakov. Okay, and the question is, is this something new? No, it's nothing new. And and I'm not 
we're, we're not happy about this. We we don't want anti-Semitism, but it seems to be that the American Jewish community is shocked to its very core. They don't even know what to do with themselves. They're apoplectic. What do we do? Oh, if we would just explain to the non-Jews what Israel is, and if we could just explain to these people, you know, who Jews are, and da-da-da-da, blah, blah, blah. You've been trying to explain that for the last 50 years, 70 years, and it's only gotten worse. The golden Medina that so many Jews thought would be the, I can't say the final solution, I don't mean it that way, but would be the final, uh, you know, corrective of the Jews sticking out and the Jews, you know, uh, you know, not blending in. America was the great solution. We won't be noticed. We'll just be like another guy. And yet, of all the peoples and cultures in America, isn't it funny? What a coinkydink that it's the Jews. It's always the Jews that are picked on. And so instead of going into a stupor of depression, what is the response? What is the response? The response is to be proud and knowledgeable and committed Jews. It's to double down on our Jewishness. Every time in history that we have shied from our Jewishness, the non-Jews have woken us up in a very unpleasant way. As one rabbi said, if Jews don't make Kiddush, the Goyim will make Havdalah, which means if the Jews do not, if we do not sanctify ourselves and make ourselves special and unique positively and define ourselves on our own moral ethical terms and be proud of the principles that we stand for and have stood for and taught the world, then the non-Jewish nations will step up and remind us negatively in a unpleasant way that we in fact are different. And I want to drill down and what that means. And there's some, there's the, the, a phrase that sends shudders up the spine of most American Jews. So I'm giving you a trigger warning, everyone. Deep breath. It's going to be okay. And you're going to make it. But it's called the chosen people. Oh no, Rabbi, don't go ballistic on us. We, you had us 1445 through the podcast, but now I've got to turn it off. It's very uncomfortable. Don't talk about the chosen people. Does that mean that you're we have the right to lord over the other nations of the world? Does that mean that we're egotistical? No, 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 no. There is a very big difference between pride in who we are and arrogance over the rest of the nations. And we should be proud. We should be proud. We have done more to civilize the humanity than any other nation on planet Earth. We think that all of the moral categories that we so accept that the world accepts now were givens. They were not. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. These were not given ideas of morality until the Jewish people taught them that. You can read Paul Johnson's The Jews, a non-Jewish historian who said that we are uniquely responsible for furnishing most of the furniture of the moral categories of the human mind, paraphrasing him. It's an unbelievable statement. And so do we Jews know? Do we know what it means to be the chosen people? Do we know the morals and principles that we 
stand for, that we're supposed to emanate to the world, that we're supposed to radiate out to the world without preaching, but setting the proper example. So when we have anti-Semitism that comes up, the real challenge is not to start the blame game, is not to bite the stick like the dog bites the stick of the master, but to think, why are we getting a potch in the tuchus? Excuse my language. Why are we getting a little kick in the knees? Maybe we need a wake-up call. Maybe we can be more responsible for our Jewish knowledge, for our Jewish practice. And in fact, history has borne out that when the Jewish people have stood up and been proud and knowledgeable and observant of our mission on planet Earth, that is the time of least anti-Semitism. Folks, Holocaust did not start in Poland. The Holocaust started in Germany. And I want to share with you a delicious story from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Zatzal Zecher Tzadik Livracham, the former chief rabbi of England who died not so long ago. He was just such an amazing, amazing Jew. And he uh, grew, grew up and um, talks about the time when it was not uh, appropriate to wear your yarmulke in the street. And one of the members of the synagogue, you know, ran after him. He, he had left his yarmulke on and he said, oh, you left your yarmulke on? I'm sure it was a mistake. And his father, Rabbi Sachs's father said, no child of mine will ever be ashamed to be Jewish in public. And that kept <laughs> through with Rabbi Sachs's life when he was a university professor of philosophy and before he even says he even wanted to become a rabbi and he was teaching with some other Jews, but mostly non-Jews, but everyone was Marxist, he said, anti-religious, irreligious, and but he always had his yarmulke on his head. He said one day, it just happened to be very windy and he was crossing the, the fields, the I guess the playing fields, and his yarmulke blew off and he said he just decided to carry it, it was gonna blow off again, he carried it in his pocket and he went to class. He says, the next day, the head of the department summoned me. Is everything all right, Jonathan, he asked. Yes, I replied, puzzled by his question. It's just that, says the his you know head of the department, I saw you yesterday crossing the playing field not wearing your skull cap, and I wondered whether anything had happened. Writes Rabbi Sachs, it was an astonishing moment. I suddenly realized that though he was not Jewish, he was deeply troubled at the thought that I might be losing my faith, whether out of philosophical doubt or the sheer isolation of being the only religious Jew on campus. I don't know if even now I fully understand his reaction, but I think it meant that my being true to my faith was part of the security of his world. He was neither religious nor Jewish, but in some obscure way, it helped him to know that there were people who were both. And if I gave up, something larger was giving away. And Rabbi Sachs concludes something very powerful that he says, if not always true, are true more often than not. Non-Jews respect Jews who respect Judaism. And they are embarrassed by Jews who are embarrassed by Judaism. And folks, I felt this myself many years ago after I came back after a stint in Israel, splitting up my undergraduate studies at Stanford University, I was the only 
undergraduate Jew with a yarmulke on my head for an entire academic year. There are a few grad students that never, I never saw them really on campus, only in the synagogue. Do you know what it's like walking on a campus, the only one with a yarmulke on? And there were many times where I, you know, felt very lonely. But on the other hand, I walked the campus of Stanford University, the great halls of academia, with pride, with passion, with clarity, knowing that we are something special. It's not something to lord over other people, but it's an example for other people. And when we Jews are confident in our Judaism and knowledgeable and fulfill it, then the non-Jews not only respect us, but they feel good about themselves. So I give us all a blessing, God willing. We will respond to this anti-Semitism. Okay, we have to do our appropriate efforts, whatever relationships we need with the police and the government and all the, you know, do our best, that's fine, for sure. But when we see anti-Semitism, we need to ask ourselves, how am I going to step up? How am I going to become a more knowledgeable, more passionate, more clear-thinking member of the chosen people? God bless. Have a great week. See you right here back next week for another exciting edition of Monday Motivation. <laughs>